welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Let's shift gears a little bit. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we just saying that um, you never leave us and that you're here. Uh, I pray now that we would actually believe that. And that that would change everything. That if we actually believe that you are here, God, that that would change everything about this place and what we're doing here. So Holy Spirit, pour out yourself upon us. Be our teacher. Be our encourager. We love you. Amen. Lalia has been going to the park a lot because she's got... uh, two-and-a-half-year-old and a six-month-old, and um, I've been preaching more, so I have less time at home. So she goes to the park, takes the boys there, and she knows that the parks are more uh, ro- well, not robust. There's more people at the park is what I'm trying to say. And she, she goes and strikes up conversation with some of the people there, and, and she's finding out that a lot of people are here from the Bay Area and up north because they're trying to get away from the smoke and the fire. And so if that's you, I want to welcome you here. Um, and so we understand that you might just be displaced right now, and we want to know that you're welcome in this family and in this church. And if there's anything that we can do to help practically, then please let us know. Last week, we began this quest, and we're continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes this week, and we're trying together to discover a really simple question. It's really easy. What's the meaning of life? So we're all wondering, why are we so busy? What is the benefit of all this work and stress in our lives? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let me take a moment just to remind you of something about the author of Ecclesiastes. This is an individual who believes in God and who wants to serve the Lord. I encountered Jesus for the first time when I was 15 years old. I became convinced that he was the way and the truth and the life um, the uh, summer after my freshman year of high school. And so when I got back that next year, I began to just pursue him with everything that I had and reprioritize my entire life. But when I was 18 years old, um, I encountered an an emotional trauma that just had me reevaluating everything. My girlfriend of two years had an abusive father who was arrested, and when he was bailed out of jail, he came home, and for the first time ever, he told me to take my girlfriend and her two younger sisters out for an adventure. He said something like, everyone could use a break right now. Take the girls and do something fun. He may have even suggested that we we go to the beach on that, that hot August day. And for a man as controlling and strict as him, this was bizarre. This was a highly unusual proposal. But unfortunately, he had an angle. Right after we left, he went out to the shed and ended his life. He left me to console and care for his three youngest daughters. He essentially left me to be the man of the house and I was not prepared. So this horrific event and its aftermath triggered a new spiritual journey in my life. Now, I still believed in God, but 
I wanted to explore some of the other options out there. I wanted to hedge my bets. I wanted to pursue some of the wisdom that the world would, that the world promised would bring me satisfaction. And so we're going to open up Scripture to Ecclesiastes 2 right now. It's in page 553 of the Pew Bible. If you've got an app, that's good too. We're going to start with just reading the first three verses. And keep in mind that this is a man who believes in God, who is writing. Beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So there's this conscious decision that was made. The man had been frustrated by his constant laboring, and he wanted answers. So step one on his agenda was to try and attain earthly pleasure. And the effort was one of full immersion into that world. When it says that he is testing and searching it with his heart, that means he's devoting his whole self to this venture. He's going at it full bore. Now, some conservative commentaries would like to say, they try to, they try to make it so that somehow this guy never, never got drunk. But honestly, he's probably not just taking a sip of wine here and there. He is indulging in revelry. He wants to know for certain if this carefree, sensory overload lifestyle will provide any sort of meaning or satisfaction to his life. After all, he says life is short. And perhaps the answer is to seize the day and squeeze as much pleasure out of it as one can. And so I had this similar rationale when I was a sophomore in college. And I was a wounded young man. Not only did my girlfriend's dad leave me in the lurch, but so did my girlfriend after three years. And I thought that maybe I could replace that confusion and that pain with some simple pleasures. After all, so many other people were doing it around me, so there had to be some wisdom in it, right? And I don't like to go into detail about this, this part of my life because I'm ministering to, to to students a lot of the time, and so I don't want them to think they, they could turn out as amazing as me after going through <laughs> a bunch of stuff. So I, I try to keep it purposely vague, right? And so I'm trying to keep it biblical. I will echo what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, and we'll leave it at that. And just as you could guess, I came to the same exact conclusion as the Bible. Who would have thought? The meaning of life is not found in debauchery and self-medication. And many of you seated here this morning may have never had to go down that path. But as the passage proceeds, I want you to see that the author's experiment with pleasure is way more sophisticated and wide-ranging. 
it's not just about drunkenness and hedonism. He tried to find meaning in something that is not so objectively bad and destructive. In fact, he tried to find meaning in something that a lot of us hold in high regard. That's success. So let's pick up verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So on his quest for meaning, on his pursuit to fill the void in his soul, this man goes about working a lot and accumulating a whole bunch of wealth. He built multiple homes, planted vineyards. These estates would include gardens and pools. He also planted all kinds of fruit trees, the produce of which would bring pleasure to his palate. He made pools to irrigate his forests of growing trees. His residence required many slaves who would, need to be, who would need to care for his animals. His homes were full of valuable and aesthetically pleasing things, and his singers provided the best music of the day. Furthermore, these residences provided the context for all the enjoyment of sex. He had many concubines, and thus he became great. He bears all the marks of what it means to be successful in the eyes of the world. Pleasure presents itself as an answer to his question, and he abandons himself to it relentlessly. He uses all of the resources at his disposal, and once the author stops and reflects on its lifestyle, he concludes that it too leaves his answer his question unanswered. He's still not satisfied. And here we are 2,400 years later, and not much has changed. Pleasure obtained through alcohol, sex, multiple homes on different continents, music, and art have become the ideal that so many aspire to achieve. When life seems meaningless, we gather up as many things as possible in order to quench our thirst for purpose. Yet, the quest for fulfillment and purpose remains as elusive as ever, but we keep returning to the same well. Seriously, why do we just keep doing it? We know because of Scripture and because of our own personal experience, and we just keep trying to fill the void with stuff. And much of this is due to the fact that we live in a society that says things like, you deserve it. You've work, been working hard. Treat yourself, or as other people say, treat yourself. Would you like to supersize that? 
If it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. Do you all remember that Sheryl Crow song? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? I wanted to loosen you up a little bit before I lay down the hammer. Here we go. We overindulge, all of us. Oftentimes it's too much of a good thing, but other times it's indulging in things that we simply know that we should not be doing. And it makes us feel good for a moment. And that's why we keep doing it. And it isn't anything new. It's not unique to 21st century American Christians in a booming economy. It's universal. It transcends time. Ecclesiastes was written hundreds of years before Jesus in the ancient Near East, and it still showcases the temptation of greed, hedonism, and excess. And then some in the earliest churches had this skewed belief that it was their privilege as Christians to indulge themselves. They thought grace would cover all of their sins, so they might as well just do whatever they wanted, right? Kind of makes sense. But then Paul has to put them in their place. In Romans 6, he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? God's grace is not a free pass to self-indulge. You don't get whatever you want whenever you want it. If you do, you just end up like Veruca Salt. Here we go again. All right, sweetheart, all right. Daddy will get you a golden goose as soon as we get home. No, I want one of those. Bunker, how much do you want for the golden goose? They're not for sale. Name your price. She can't have one. Who says I can't? The man with a funny hat. I want one. I want a golden goose. Gooses. Geeses. I want my geese to lay gold eggs for Easter. It will, sweetheart. At least a hundred a day. Anything you say. By the way. What? I want a feast. You ate before you came to the factory. I want a bean feast. One of those. Cream buns and donuts and fruitcake with no nuts. So good you could go nuts. You're going to have all those things when you get home. No, now. I want a ball. I want a party. Pink macaroons and a million balloons and performing baboons and give it to me. <laughs> now. I want the world. I want the whole world. I want to lock it all up in my pocket. It's my bar of chocolate. Give it to me now. I want today. I want tomorrow. I want to wear my braids in my hair and I don't want to share them. I want a party with roomfuls of laughter. 10,000 tons of ice cream. And if I don't get the things I am after,
So I will have you know that right after this, Veruca Salt's dad asks Willy Wonka, where did she go? This is what Willy Wonka responds with. She went down the garbage chute to the fiery furnace. But Luke, am I really a bad egg if I am rich or successful? Is it really a sin to be, to be wealthy? And before you go pointing your finger at someone in the room that has more than you, I want to remind you that in the scope of all humanity, every single one of us is rich and has more possessions than 90% of this world. This passage might seem like it's far away or too extravagant, But the simple fact that we have so much at our fingertips means that we are not far off from what Ecclesiastes 2 is saying. We have all of this stuff. These nice things are at our disposal. We eat good food, sleep in beautiful homes, go to wonderful schools, drive in great cars, take vacations. Most of us live pretty charmed lives. And if you're thinking that none of that applies to you, then just Remove that adjective that I used, and you're already ahead of the world. You eat food. You sleep in a home. You or your kids go to school. You drive a car. The point is, all of us have a lot. We have a lot to be thankful for. So no, simply being wealthy or having possessions is not inherently sinful, but it sure as heck puts a lot more temptation in front of us. It can lead to this insatiable appetite that begins to control our lives. It can trick us into thinking that we are fine and that we don't need God. But if God is not at the center of our lives, then something else is. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Tim Keller talks about the sin of wanting the Father's things more than the Father. I know this all too well as the father of a toddler. The truth is that the only thing that puts a man into a right relationship with his possessions is the understanding that every good gift comes from God. Tim Keller says it like this, if you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, All your resources are, in the end, the gift of God. We don't like that. That doesn't sit well with us. Because just like with grace and forgiveness, we sometimes mistakenly think that we earned our good fortune. And that is the height of arrogance, and it's it's an affront to God. He is the one who created us and sustains us, and puts the breath in our lungs. And that is why the end result found in verse 11 says, then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes goes on an exploration into life. It tests some of the things that the world says um, will satisfy And time and time again, the world's wisdom fails the test. The world says to indulge, to make yourself happy. How is that working out for you? Honestly, think about that. How is that working out for you? 
Many of you are still testing this hypothesis that the meaning of life is found in pleasure and possession. Have you reached your conclusion yet? I think many of you have realized the truth, but you continue down the same path to emptiness. And I get it. It is a hard cycle to break because it really does trick us into thinking that we are happy and fulfilled. The temptations are everywhere. The rat race is real on the peninsula. I get it. I experience it. I sense it. But self-indulgence and instant gratification are destructive. And I don't need to convince you of this. I really don't. I don't need to parade out research for you. But I will try to soften it a little bit with this very cute illustration. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you to give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a modern day uh, take on a famous Stanford uh, study called the marshmallow test. And in the original experiment, the um, scientists followed up with these kids many years later. And what they discovered is that the kids that were able to delay their gratification were far more successful and well-adjusted in life. And I thought about how I could replicate that same experiment here with you all, but I had one major issue. I couldn't think of anything that would tempt you sufficiently. Part of the beauty of this experiment was the fact that these children um, were so simple and that a marshmallow was enough of a treat to cause them that anguish, that one kid, that poor kid, the anguish on his face over a marshmallow. I knew of no such treat that I could afford that, was, that would cause you to really sweat. And so instead of going going to attempt to try to recreate this, I, I figured I'd draw out the illustration for you. We are those children. Our marshmallows are the things of this world and the pleasures that they hold. We can choose to devour them and ignore the promise of what, what is to come. And what is to come is the second marshmallow. I will call it, in honor of Willy Wonka, the everlasting marshmallow. It is Christ, it is heaven, it is eternal life, it is purpose, fulfillment, unbridled joy. Something that's really interesting, God does not tell us that we cannot have the first marshmallow. Instead, he tells us to wait on him. Once we have waited and been assured of the second marshmallow, then we can really enjoy that first marshmallow. The experiment shows that there are these two responses, right? Either we can wait or we indulge. I think there's actually a third option that many of us would experience. I think it's the option that the author of Ecclesiastes took. Some of you wouldn't hesitate to eat that first marshmallow because you know full well when you walk out this door, you could buy a whole bunch more. You could get a Costco-sized marshmallow. You could be ordering prime marshmallows right now and Amazon would have them at your door in two days. There's basically nothing standing in the way of us getting as many marshmallows as we want. And so long as we do, as so long as we do not wait for the everlasting marshmallow, all of those other marshmallows will make us think that we are full. But we're not full. We're, we're malnourished. We want something better. We want something more substantial. So to sum it all up, the things of this world and the pleasures that they hold will not quench our thirst unless we recognize that God is the source of all that is good and lovely. Is that enough though? Is it enough just to recognize that God is the source? I would say that that's a really, really important initial step. But in order to find more meaning and purpose in life, you need to progress beyond just a realization, beyond just a heart of gratitude. You want to know the second step? All right, people like step-by-step -step things. I know a lot of you are already done with step one. 
I know a lot of you already recognize that everything that you have in this life can be attributed to the graciousness and goodness of God. Step two would be those, those destructive things, those things that you're indulging on. Stop. Stop doing them. Stop drinking to excess and having meaningless sex. Stop soothing your emptiness with your stuff and your status. Here's the deal. You know it isn't working. You know it isn't working. So you have steps one and two, but what's the ultimate goal? And that's found in the passage that was read to us by Amy this morning in Mark 8. Jesus came as the answer to Ecclesiastes. But the answer that he gives was completely unexpected. He says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You aren't taking any of this stuff with you. The fires are a, a very real reminder of that. All of people's stuff gone like that. You can't take it with you. The pleasures of this world are going to fade away. And by the way, they pale in comparison to what awaits us. But I want to end with an encouragement. I really believe that you're not far off. You should be hungry. And you should be ambitious. And you should strive to be successful, but for the things of God, not of this world. C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You should indulge. You should just not be self-indulgent. And you should nourish yourself. I would say, actually, that you should gorge yourself on the things of God. And that's why the, the psalmist says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are the answer to this quest. So many of us have recognized that all the other things that we're chasing after just don't fill us up. Some of us have already recognized that you are God, and yet we still pursue the things of this world. Pray that you, 
you can help us. You can help us to first love you, Father, and recognize that your gifts are just a secondary thing compared to the goodness and love of our Heavenly Father. And Father, now we give back a portion of what you have given to us. And we pray that you would multiply it and use it to spread your word to the people who are suffering because they do not know you, that they're relying on the wisdom of the world, that these resources might go out and share with them the gospel and the truth that God is the one that fulfills. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.